0: Well, good morning, everyone. Every time I uh, stand in this pulpit, I'm reminded of the enormous responsibility that comes with um, sharing God's word, with with sharing the gospel. And so um, this week and in other weeks past, um, I always try to design a lesson or a message around not only the pulpit teaching, uh, but also something that you can take with you that you can Um, pray over over the course of the coming week. And I especially want to focus on that today because I think it's one of the most important messages that I feel that I can give. And that is on this idea of indispensable grace. And there are several verses that will allow you this week to reflect and to pray over and to really soul search your way through this whole concept of indispensable grace. I think it's something that we continue to work through every day that God puts us here on this earth. This understanding of how our sins are forgiven and the responsibility we have to forgive others. And that's kind of the point of my whole message here this morning. And so if you will start, um, these are kind of laid out in your notes, but if you want to also open up to the book of Matthew, we're going to start in uh, chapter 23. And just one visual here this morning. Um, to kind of get us started, I've got about a dozen of these. Um, they're just coffee mugs. Um, some of them are stainless steel. Um, all of them have some kind of symbol on them of something that was important to me at one time in my life or something that is still important to me today. And on the outside, they're very shiny and they're very beautiful. Uh, and this one, not so much, but all the stainless steel ones need wash, so I brought this. The only problem is when you put a lid on it um, and you've put coffee in it with a dairy creamer, and you let that sit on your desk for four days and don't pay attention to it. Um, and then you forget that it's sort of full at the bottom. And you open it up and you fill it up with water and you take a drink and you didn't look inside. That's a problem. Um, then you look in and realize there's a science experiment growing in this mug. And you realize that the inside of your mug looks very different from the outside. And it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he is talking to the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23, verse 26. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean as well. Now I think we can clearly understand what Jesus is getting at here. And it's a guiding question for this morning and for the week ahead as you maul your way through what we're, be- what we're learning about grace Not only receiving it, but extending it. And that is, how is your bowl? How is the inside of your soul, if you will, if we extend that metaphor, how is it looking in the light of receiving and offering grace? That's an individual question for each one of us to go through. And I think it's something we need to, a spiritual practice we need to go through every single day. Is to examine our lives before a holy God. Before a holy God who gave everything So that we could be saved and there are several scriptures that we're going to go through that are going to teach us about the state of our souls separate from God and then the beauty of his grace the life changing power of God's grace we're going to start then in Luke chapter 8 now this is also in your notes but if you want to turn in your Bibles to verse 9 through 14 we're going to start here this morning and I want to give you some context for this passage. Jesus is again encountering a group of Pharisees, and we know all throughout Scripture they are constantly nipping at his heels, challenging his teaching, trying to catch him, trying to make him look bad, and Jesus keeps and constantly just responds, responds, responds. And this group of Pharisees, we learn from this passage, are very confident in their own righteousness, so much so that they are so arrogant that they are looking down on everyone else around them. They're holding power over them. Their spiritual arrogance is so obvious. And so Jesus notices this, and he says, basically, this has got to stop. So I'm going to tell them a story. And here's the parable that he begins with in Luke 8, 9 through 14. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. What a way to start a prayer, huh? I'm so thankful I'm not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, even this tax collector who's off to the corner. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And then Jesus goes on and says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus then turns to the Pharisees and he says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, and he's looking and pointing for the tax collector here, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus reserves his judgment for the pharisee and he offers forgiveness to the sinner. Man, that is powerful. He reserves a judgment for the pharisee and he offers forgiveness for the sinner. Now the question is obviously this, why is that significant? Why is that important for us to know? Why is that important for us to reflect upon today and in the week ahead? Why does this need to be part of our spiritual walk every single day? The answer is simply this. We are all sinners. Every single one of us. And we all require grace. And that grace only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that. And here's what we learn if we were to compare the tax collector and the Pharisee. Two things. The Pharisee goes in prayer, and he's proud. He's proud. He's, he's, it's all about himself. So those two things we learn. He is proud in his prayer, and he continues to focus on himself, what he's done, why he's better than everybody else. And Jesus points out that it's the tax collector who comes, number one, and is humble, completely humble, bows down in front of God. And the second thing he understands is, my salvation isn't about me, but it's about Jesus. Father, I have sinned. I fall before you. Will you forgive me? See, the Pharisee wants to be seen. That was typical of the Pharisees of the day. They wanted to be seen. They wanted everyone to know how righteous they were. And it got to the point where their righteousness became arrogance. And Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't make public displays of your faith to bring the attention to yourself. He said it's better if you go into another room, shut the door, and pray because it's your Father who will see you and reward you. One scholar says about this parable that the Pharisee wasn't actually asking anything through prayer, but he was basking. (laughs) And Jesus is calling out that type of faith. He's calling out people who bring the attention upon themselves and their own righteousness rather than making it about his grace and our utter need for it. It kills our witness when we are spiritually arrogant. And Jesus teaches and teaches and teaches about this. It is about him. It focuses on the external and and, and then we, we don't worry about what's on the inside. And that's what Jesus warns us. Every one of us needs to be constantly looking on the inside. Our own soul our own bowl. I don't find anywhere in scripture where Jesus says and by the way make sure you're looking in on all the bowls of all your friends and relatives and neighbors. He says you focus on yourself. Focus on yourself because no one is capable of living a life free of sin. We cannot stand before a holy perfect God based on our own merits. I don't care how much money we give, I don't care how many times we come to church, I don't care how many songs we sing short of the blood of Jesus Christ We fall short of a holy God. We're all equal in that way. And to illustrate this point, to make it abundantly clear that it's not about us, just like that video shared, I want to take you to Matthew 5, 21 through 28. This is another thing I've asked you to highlight for the week. Jesus sets an unbelievable standard here, and there's a reason why he does it. Would you look at Matthew 5, 21 to 28 with me? Jesus says, you have heard... That it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Well, that's easy to do. We don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But look where Jesus takes it. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka or some type of defacing thing, he says, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you, you fool will be in dangers of the fires of hell. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So that's a pretty high standard. Yeah, it's easy to say we're not murderers. But Jesus is saying even your anger that's unresolved separates you from God. Notice what else he says. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And then he goes on to say this. You talk about a standard. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. But how many of you are perfect in light of that scripture? Other than one hand I saw back there, and I don't know if he was serious or not. That's pretty high standard, isn't it? Jesus isn't saying that if you don't meet and match all of these things, you're automatically gone. What he's saying is, if you think that you are worthy in front of a holy God, you're not. Because here's the standard that it actually is. And there's only one way that connects us to that holy God, and that is the grace that Jesus brings when he dies on the cross. And we can't forget that. We cannot forget that. There is no human standard high enough to match a perfect and holy God. And what happens is if we become self-righteous and believe that we are going to make it on our own, we sort of tend towards self-righteousness. And when we tend towards self-righteousness, we focus on all the external things that we do that everybody gets to see, but we never shine a light inside our own darkest places in our souls. And we don't tend to the bowl that Jesus tells us we need to tend to, because when we tend to that daily, we start to really sort through and realize, boy, there's a lot of stuff that I still struggle with. There's a lot of anger that I hold. There's some resentment. There's some other things. There's sin inside my heart. And i got to constantly sweep and clean and compare that to the word of God. Compare that to the direction that he gives. See, there's great temptation for us to take pride in ourselves and our own accomplishments in our faith. There's a greater challenge when we look deep inside ourselves, inside our hearts, inside our souls, and ask ourselves this honest question, is there anything I need to cleanse because when we do that, we, we, we foster a heart of humility. We foster the appreciation that we are falling short. And we appreciate grace so much more. And that leads us away from pride. And it leads us toward humility. So we've talked about lots of spiritual practices over the last couple of years. We've talked about chair time. We've talked about giving. We've talked about doing well and serving other people. But we don't do those things in and of themselves to bring glory to ourselves. We do those things to draw us closer to God. We do those things because we understand and appreciate the grace that His death has given us when we choose to follow Him. When we begin to see our work as about ourselves... We begin to compare ourselves to other people. And when we compare, inevitably we do what? We end up competing. And when we compete, we take this worldview that there are spiritual winners and spiritual losers. I'm going to give you an example, and I'm going to try to illustrate this. First with a, with a school analogy, and then with what I think is a spiritual analogy. I'm a big believer. Every, every child needs to leave school being a proficient reader. And we track that, and we track that, and we track that. And every year, we give these assessments. And these assessments are based on how this child did compared to a group of kids who took, the, took this test three years ago. And they're put on a, on, a, on a norming line. However, they score, they get a percentile rank. And we always focus on this, who's, who's above the 41st percentile and who's below. And we celebrate when we have all these proficiency scores. But can I tell you where the real victories are? The real victories are when you have a kid who wound up in the 7th percentile one year And the next year, he was at the 37th. He grew three times in a year. we want to celebrate that. Now, he still or he or she doesn't still wind up on the above proficient. But there's glory in where they've come from. And we celebrate that. Now, let me ask you this. Flip it around now to our spiritual walk. I can sit back and I can say, wow, I've I've kind of got it all together. But you know how sort of easy my life has been? (laughs) I grew up in a home where the Bible was taken seriously. I grew up in a home where my mother loved me, supported me. I grew up in a home where it was expected that we were in church every Sunday. I married a wife who grew up the same way, and I feel fortunate that I met this woman because she's fantastic, all right? I've had some pretty lucky breaks along the way, and I can sit back and puff up my chest and say, oh, look at, look at how my spiritual life's going. Well, guess what? How about the person who maybe didn't get to grow up in a a home of love? What about someone who grows up with abuse? What if someone who grew up around alcoholism or drug abuse? What happens if someone got involved in a relationship and they got their heart torn apart? What if they lost somebody that they loved at a very early age? You see where I'm going with this? Who am I to judge somebody else until I know their story? Who am I to get so self-righteous when I've been given every advantage in my faith from the time I was two years old because my mom took care of me? and help me grow in my faith. Who am I to judge someone who didn't grow up in that same environment until I know their story? That's what Jesus is getting at when he's describing our responsibility in this world. I think it's very clear and it's very easy to simply go to Micah and understand that we have three responsibilities in our faith. We are to do justice, we are to love mercy, and we are to walk humbly with our God. That's what we're responsible to do. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. And I've been hitting this verse over and over again. I'll go back to it one more time. I weigh my life against the fruits of the Spirit that Paul writes in Galatians 5.22. I want to live with peace. I want to live with patience and joy and love and self-control. And when I have a focus there, when I'm in the Word, when I'm in prayer, when I'm surrounded by people who have that same mindset... I have no room to brag, and I have all the room to grow and serve. That's where we need to head in our faith. Grace means that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. There is no scorekeeping. None. You know, for all the times I can look back and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I was brought up in the church. Boy, I can look back at my life and go, boy, even though you were, you still made that decision? <laughs> You still said that to somebody? You still thought that? You still did that? I got a lot of room to grow. I got to look at my own bowl and begin with myself. That's what each of us has to do. Now, there's a reason why Jesus chose the tax collector. I think this is fascinating. Now, if I say the word April, or if I I just say April 15th, you'll all know what I'm talking about, right? April 15th is what? And we love that day, don't we? No. Now I want you to imagine this: In our country today, we get a choice. I can pick out teddy ball up at Sioux City. I can go to somebody in Ottawa. We can pick anybody independently to do our taxes for, so we can do them ourselves. So we have somebody's kind of advocating for us, right? Back in the first century, the Roman government was its own tax collector. So I want you to think about how fair this system was. Picture it today if the American government was our tax collecting system and our local tax person would just take an extra 20% of your paycheck off the top just to take care of himself or herself. Would that make you angry? That's exactly what this tax collector represents in this parable. Tax collectors were viewed as some of the lowest of the low in society at that time. And so Jesus, I think, is very intentional to try to choose somebody who would truly be seen as not a great person. This is not a hero in this parable. This is a bad person who does wrong things. But the point isn't what he's done. The point is his response to what he's done. This tax collector, first of all, stays a distance from the temple. He doesn't come right to the middle of it like the the Pharisee. He sort of stays off to the side, humbly stays there. And then he beats his breast. And this is interesting, too, as I, as I kind of looked into this. That was an expression that would have been very noticeable or very understood back in the first century. When you were beating your breast, that would be sort of like today. When we get really down on ourselves or, or something happens, we go, oh, I can't believe that. We might go like this. There's something where we just sort of fall upon our own mistakes and we just go, oh, holy cow, how did I do that? Back in those days, you would, you would hit your chest. And so to show how repentant he was... He's beating his breast. He's coming before God. And he says, my mistakes, my guilt is now so unmanageable. God, I cry out to you. Forgive me. Forgive me. And what does God do in this parable? What does Jesus promise that God will do? He forgives him. But it's because he comes with a humble heart. It's because he comes without any sense of arrogance, without any sense about himself, He repents purely out of the need for Jesus. And that's a practice that we need to stay with over and over again. This isn't in your notes, but I want to give you one last passage. And this is one I really want us to mull over. And I want to read it with you if you can turn to Matthew 18, verse 21. This is a very familiar story. It's one that is always good to review. This is what Jesus talks about when he talks about your grace received Versus your grace extended to others. Listen to what it says. It says, Truly I tell you, whenever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I truly tell you you that if two of you on earth agree about everything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father. And so I want to go to verse 23. I want you to see what's happening here. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Here's another parable. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. I mean, put put this in terms of millions of dollars today. This guy owes him. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had sold be sold to repay the debt. They're going to sell his family off to get his debt paid. At this point, the servant fell on his knees before him. He said, "'Be patient with me,' he begged, "'and I will pay back everything.' The servant's master took pity on him. Notice this word. Didn't delay the debt. He canceled the debt and let him go. But then that servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. "'Pay back what you owe me,' he demanded.' His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But the man refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. They went to the master and listened to what the master says. You wicked servant. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And this is the verse that rocks me to my core. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoa. Now that's a judgment verse, if there ever was one. God is extremely sensitive to how we dispense grace. You see, for the forgiven, each one of us, there is great responsibility to forgive. Peter one time asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And he's thinking he's being pretty righteous. I'll forgive seven times. What did Jesus say in response? Seven times 70 now, he's setting a bar, just like in some of these other parables, that is so high, so far above what's expected. But here's a case where a man loses everything. There's no way he can pay this debt back. And the king cancels his debt. And what does he do with someone who owes him a little bit? Does he show the same forgiveness? No. And Jesus is very clear. <laughs> if you're looking for verses of judgment, that's a judgment verse. If you can't forgive, then this is what you can expect from my father. I, I, I wrestle with that. It would take me probably three or four more series of just study to really get to the bottom of that. But at face value, I take that as a pretty serious verse, a pretty serious challenge for us. Many, many years ago when I was at Westwood teaching, I, I worked with, uh, with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we had a group of junior high students. They were in the class of 2001. Um, they were eighth graders, and I wanted to take them to a leadership camp. And it was, I think, $400 a kid. And so we're talking about raising 4000 bucks. And so we did a bake sale at the Sloan Days. We went out and I think did some field work in a cornfield. And our big thing was we were selling um, ties and other things. I think some of you might even be wearing them. I know Brenda was part of that group. But I made a huge mistake. And the mistake was this. I didn't read the fine print. They sent me boxes of ties and boxes of clothing and materials that we were selling. And I forgot to read the fine print that all of the materials unsold were supposed to be returned by May 31st. And so we're a month away from, it was at the end of July, this camp was taking place. It was right around the 4th of July, I remember. I called in, I said, hey, what do I need to do? And I'll never forget what the lady said. She goes, Jeff, you were supposed to return all that stuff a month ago. Um, We can't take it back. Um, You're going to have to write a check for the difference and then be done with it. Or um, that's all we can do. Now here we've just raised $4,000, and I'm figuring I'm going to have to write a check for close to $1,000 back. And I'm not going to take that out of our kids' account, so I'm figuring I'm going to have to write this check. And I'm just like, oh, no. 1000 <laughs> bucks almost. But she said, I'll tell you what. Let me talk to my supervisor. I'll call you back tomorrow. Didn't sleep real well that night. Um, but that next day she called back and she said, you know, Jeff, I talked to my supervisor. I th- we think it's great what you're all doing together. Why don't you go ahead and mail that back, and we'll just call it even. Wow, the weight that fell off my shoulder. And I'll never forget her saying this. She said, you know, Jeff, we, we're a Christian company. I mean, these ties had little crosses on them. They had, uh, you know, FCA logo shirts and those kinds of things. She said, you know, here's a chance for us to demonstrate grace. We know you made a mistake, but we're not going to hold you to it. You send it back, and we'll be able to redistribute those goods, and, and we'll be good. You see, she didn't just say, don't worry about it. That company had to cancel the debt. They absorbed the cost. When Jesus went to the cross, he had to pay for our sins. These sins that keep us short from from reaching God's glory. And he paid that price for us. He canceled that debt. And I'm going to promise you this. That trip, I remember those four days on that trip. If we had a kid who fell a little short of money, do you know how quick I was to hand $10 over? Real quick, you know why? Because I got the feeling of grace. Hey, you, you kind of bookmark a few hundred dollars from what you were just spared and figure out how you can help some of these kids along the way. That's grace. That's what grace meant. You see, in this parable, with the stroke of a pen, with the stroke of a word, the king absorbs the debt, and he sets this guy free. It's very clear. It's an accounting metaphor. The debt doesn't disappear. Someone else had to absorb it. And so the king absorbs this guy's debt but this guy's not willing to absorb the debt of this person who owed him. And that's the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. People who are extended grace are respo- or excuse me, people who receive grace are responsible to extend it. It's very, very clear. Christ absorbed our moral debt. He brought redemption to us. And now our responsibility is to do the same in our relationships and the people we encounter. I'm going to mull over that verse all week. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you according to the grace you offer others. So I have two challenges this week. I want to make this very practical as we close and as Josh comes up today. To, to wrap up our, 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 sermon, our service, to wrap up this message. I have two challenges. And trust me when I say I'm giving myself the same challenge that I'm going to give everybody here this morning. First of all, because of grace, you and I can be forgiven. I want to share that with you. If you've never heard that, if this is the first time that you're here. This is the first time you've heard a gospel message. Know that your sins can be forgiven. I want to make sure I highlight the difference between guilt and shame okay guilt is a necessary part of our faith walk and i mean it like this guilt because we're promised that god's word is a light into our feet excuse me a lamp into our feet and a light into our path well guess what sometimes we make choices and we get off the path don't we we get off the path usually it's a feeling of guilt That brings me to the point of understanding my wrongs. It's that guilt that leads to repentance. It's that repentance that brings us to the light. And it's that light that continues us on our path. Guilt's important. Trust me, you don't want to raise kids who feel no guilt. (laughs) Guilt is important to our faith. It's an important element of us growing and refining ourselves. But it's very different than shame. Shame is not... (laughs) not part of God's will because what shame does is shame tells us that what we've done is so bad so wrong separates us so far from God that we might as well just run and hide and so shame takes us to the darkness and shame can be a very dangerous thing give you one quick example last year rummage sale Joey comes home dad I made $25 really that's awesome you made $25 yeah I sold your iPod he didn't think I used it anymore. It was sitting, and to my, to my fault, it was sitting under the, the couch. I was looking for it, and he found it. He said, I didn't think you were using it anymore. I made $25 on your iPod. Well, he clearly heard me that morning um, frustratedly yelling at Beth, <laughs> or not yelling at Beth, but yelling about this to Beth, or at least my voice was raised, and he knew, oh, boy, I messed up. That, that was a little more than $25, and it had a lot more dollars in music on it. And he knew Well, we spent the day, and we didn't see Joey. I'm telling you, we did not see him from noon until supper time. We didn't know where he was. Found him in a room buried under the covers. And when I pulled the covers back, it was just this sweaty, tear-filled mess. And I just grabbed him. I put my arms around him. I said, Joey, I'm really frustrated that you did this. But you're a lot more important than that iPod. Now, my instincts as a father were this: It killed me to see him hiding from me out of shame. Now he needed to understand he can't do that again, <laughs> but I never want him to reach a point where he thinks he's done something and he has to run and hide from me and never show his face again. Now, if my instincts as a humanly father, or a humanly, a human father are to have that kind of love and care for Joey, even when he frustrates and angers me. Can you imagine the love and concern that our Heavenly Father has to us? The difference between guilt and shame. My son knows he's never going to sell my iPod again. But Joey also knows that no matter what, hopefully he knows this, and I'll keep hammering it home, hopefully he also knows that there's nothing that he can do that I'm not going to love him through. As hard as it may be, I'm always going to love him through whatever choices and decisions he struggles with. Our kids have to know that, but more importantly, you and I have to know that, that that's how our Heavenly Father responds to us. And it's all because of this undisputable, unbelievable grace. And it's the same grace that we're required to extend to everyone else. So here's what I want you to do to close today. I'm going to invite you to do this. This is on your own. This is for your growth. You'll get what you put into it, which could be all or nothing. I'm simply going to ask you to do this. I'm going to do the same thing. On the back of your notes or if you have a place where you want to write something at home, I want you to do this, and I want you to really pray over it. Make a list of every single person who you need to forgive. Okay? Make a list. Um, Maybe they owe you five bucks, or maybe it's something way deeper and more serious than that. Maybe it's someone who has really, really hurt you. Make that list. Now, I don't want to trivialize this because I know that every one of us somewhere along the way has been badly hurt by somebody in some way. And it's simply not easy just to say, well, I forgive them, I'll move on. There's a great country western song um, where uh, where this woman sings, you know, Jesus may love you, but I don't, and he may forgive you, but I won't. I don't want us to go there. But sometimes we can say we forgive, but yet we still harbor those ill feelings. They still churn inside of us. I want you just to have that list in front of you. And then I want you just to pray to God, God, I don't know that I have the power to forgive every single situation, every single person here, but would you give me, this, give me two things? Would you, first of all, give me opportunities to grow through this? Help me see if there's a way I can reach that point. And Father, will you help get me to the point where I can offer that forgiveness? And here's the tricky thing. A very wise man told me recently that sometimes you have to be prepared to offer forgiveness for apologies that never come. I love that. I said, that should be a country western song. You have to be prepared to offer forgiveness sometimes for the apologies that never come. Because you're the one drinking the poison when you're the one who can't forgive. I want to encourage you this week. Make a list. Make a list of all the things, all the places, all the people that you're harboring, that you're holding on to and say, God, I need to release this to you. Give me the strength to one day reach an opportunity or to reach the moment where I can say, I forgive this. I forgive you. I forgive that. It frees your soul. It frees your spirit. And it allows you to live the life of joy that God is calling us to live. Plus, he seriously commands us to do so. Would you pray with me as we close today? Father God, we are so thankful, so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that in our weaknesses, we're thankful that in our sin, that in all the ways that we humanly fall short of your glory, that you made a decision to take that upon yourself, that you sent Jesus to this world. He taught us to live He taught us how to love. And most importantly, Father, He bore the cross that we all deserve. Father, I don't even know how to put a quantified number on what a saved life is worth. But it's way more than any amount of money. It's way more than any amount of material possession. We have that freedom in You when we follow You. So, Father, with that excitement and with that thankfulness, I pray that each of us can let go of the things that we're harboring. Help us to forgive those who have hurt us. Help us to forgive those who need our forgiveness. We didn't deserve what Jesus did for us, and sometimes people don't deserve the forgiveness that we can give them. But, Father, it's not about what's deserved, it's simply about you and your righteousness and your holiness and our desire to come to that point. For all of us here, I pray that we can really pray through, think through, talk with our close friends about the places in our lives that we need to clean our bowls, and offer forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.